0: Book eight, chapters one through fourteen of *The City of God*. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Darren L. Slider. www.logoslibrary.org. *The City of God* by Saint Augustine of Hippo. Book eight, chapter one. We shall require to apply our mind with far greater intensity to the present question than was requisite in the solution and unfolding of the questions handled in the preceding books, for it is not with ordinary men but with philosophers that we must confer concerning the theology which they call natural for it is not like the fabulous, that is, the theatrical, nor the civil, that is, the urban theology, the one of which displays the crimes of the gods, whilst the other manifests their criminal desires, which demonstrate them to be rather malign demons than gods. It is, we say, with philosophers we have to confer with respect to this theology, men whose very name, if rendered into Latin, signifies those who profess the love of wisdom now if wisdom is god who made all things as is attested by the divine authority and truth then the philosopher is a lover of god but since the thing itself which is called by this name exists not in all who glory in the name for it does not follow of course that all who are called philosophers are lovers of true wisdom we must need select from the number of those with whose opinions we have been able to acquaint ourselves by reading some with whom we may not unworthily engage in the treatment of this question for i have not in this work undertaken to refute all the vain opinions of the philosophers but only such as pertain to theology which greek word we understand to mean an account or explanation of the divine nature nor, again, have I undertaken to refute all the vain theological opinions of all the philosophers, but only of such of them as, agreeing in the belief that there is a divine nature, and that this divine nature is concerned about human affairs, do nevertheless deny that the worship of the one unchangeable God is sufficient for the obtaining of a blessed life after death, as well as at the present time, and hold that in order to obtain that life, many gods, created indeed, and appointed to their several spheres by that one God, are to be worshipped concept. These approach nearer to the truth than even Varro, for whilst he saw no difficulty in extending natural theology in its entirety even to the world and the soul of the world, these acknowledge God as existing above all that is of the nature of soul, and as the creator not only of this visible world, which is often called heaven and earth, but also of every soul whatsoever, and as him who gives blessedness to the rational soul, of which kind is the human soul, by participation in his own unchangeable and incorporeal light. There is no one who has even a slender knowledge of these things who does not know of the Platonic philosophers who derive their name from their master Plato. Concerning this Plato, then, I will briefly state such things as I deem necessary to the present question, mentioning beforehand those who preceded him in time in the same department of literature. CHAPTER Two as far as concerns the literature of the greeks whose language holds a more illustrious place than any of the languages of the other nations history mentions two schools of philosophers the one called the italic school originating in that part of italy which was formerly called magna grecia the other called the ionic school having its origin in those regions which are still called by the name of greece the italic school had for its founder pythagoras of samos to whom also the term philosophy is said to owe its origin for whereas formerly those who seemed to excel others by the laudable manner in which they regulated their lives were called sages pythagoras on being asked what he professed replied that he was a philosopher that is a student or lover of wisdom for it seemed to him to be the height of arrogance to profess oneself a sage the founder of the ionic school again was thales of miletus one of those seven who were styled the seven sages of whom six were distinguished by the kind of life they lived and by certain maxims which they gave forth for the proper conduct of life Thales was distinguished as an investigator into the nature of things, and in order that he might have successors in his school, he committed his dissertations to writing. That, however, which especially rendered him eminent was his ability, by means of astronomical calculations, even to predict eclipses of the sun and moon. He thought, however, that water was the first principle of things, and that of it all the elements of the world, the world itself, and all things which are generated in it, ultimately consist. Over all this work, however, which, when we consider the world, appears so admirable, he set nothing of the nature of divine mind. To him succeeded Anaximander, his pupil, who held a different opinion concerning the nature of things. For he did not hold that all things spring from one principle, as Thales did, who held that principle to be water, but thought that each thing springs from its own proper principle. These principles of things he believed to be infinite in number, and thought that they generated innumerable worlds, and all the things which arise in them. He thought also that these worlds are subject to a perpetual process of alternate dissolution and regeneration, each one continuing for a longer or shorter period of time, according to the nature of the case. Nor did he, any more than Thales, attribute anything to a divine mind in the production of all this activity of things. Anaximeter left as his successor his disciple Anaximenes, who attributed all the causes of things to an infinite air. He neither denied nor ignored the existence of gods, but so far from believing that the air was made by them, he held, on the contrary, that they sprang from the air. Anaxagoras, however, who was his pupil, perceived that a divine mind was the productive cause of all things which we see, and said that all the various kinds of things, according to their several modes and species, were produced out of an infinite matter consisting of homogeneous particles, but by the efficiency of a divine mind. Diogenes also, another pupil of Anaximenes, said that a certain air was the original substance of things out of which all things were produced, but that it was possessed of a divine reason without which nothing could be produced from it. And Exagoras was succeeded by his disciple Archelaus, who also thought that all things consisted of homogeneous particles, of which each particular thing was made, but that those particles were pervaded by a divine mind, which perpetually energized all the eternal bodies, namely those particles, so that they are alternately united and separated. Socrates, the master of Plato, is said to have been the disciple of Archelaus, and on Plato's account it is that I have given this brief historical sketch of the whole history of these schools. CHAPTER three: Socrates is said to have been the first who directed the entire effort of philosophy to the correction and regulation of manners, all who went before him having expended their greatest efforts in the investigation of physical, that is, natural, phenomena. However, it seems to me that it cannot be certainly discovered whether Socrates did this because he was wearied of obscure and uncertain things, and so wished to direct his mind to the discovery of something manifest and certain, which was necessary in order to the obtaining of a blessed life, that one great object toward which the labour, vigilance, and industry of all philosophers seem to have been directed, or whether, as some yet more favourable to him suppose, he did it because he was unwilling that minds defiled with earthly desires should essay to raise themselves up. to divine things. For he saw that the causes of things were sought for by them, which causes he believed to be ultimately reducible to nothing else than the will of the one true and supreme God. And on this account he thought they could only be comprehended by a purified mind, and therefore that all diligence ought to be given to the purification of the life by good morals, in order that the mind, delivered from the depressing weight of lusts, might raise itself upward by its native vigour to eternal things, and might, with purified understanding, contemplate that nature which is incorporeal and unchangeable light, where live the causes of all created natures. It is evident, however, that he hunted out and pursued, with a wonderful pleasantness of style and argument, and with a most pointed and insinuating urbanity, the foolishness of ignorant men, who thought that they knew this or that, sometimes confessing his own ignorance and sometimes dissimulating his knowledge, even in those very moral questions to which he seems to have directed the whole force of his mind and hence there arose hostility against him which ended in his becoming calumniously impeached and condemned to death afterwards however that very city of the athenians which had publicly condemned him did publicly bewail him the popular indignation having turned with such vehemence on his accusers that one of them perished by the violence of the multitude whilst the other only escaped a like punishment by voluntary and perpetual exile illustrious therefore both in his life and in his death socrates left very many disciples of his philosophy who vied with one another in desire for proficiency in handling those moral questions which concern the chief good summum bonum the possession of which can make a man blessed And because, in the disputations of Socrates, where he raises all manner of questions, makes assertions, and then demolishes them, it did not evidently appear what he held to be the chief good. Every one took from these disputations what pleased him best, and every one placed the final good in whatever it appeared to himself to consist. Now that which is called the final good is that at which, when one has arrived, he is blessed. But so diverse were the opinions held by those followers of Socrates concerning this final good, that, a thing scarcely to be credited with respect to the followers of one master, some placed the chief good in pleasure, as Aristippus, others in virtue, as Antisthenes. Indeed it were tedious to recount the various opinions of various disciples. CHAPTER Four but among the disciples of socrates plato was the one who shone with a glory which far excelled that of the others and who not unjustly eclipsed them all by birth an athenian of honourable parentage he far surpassed his fellow disciples in natural endowments of which he was possessed in a wonderful degree Yet, deeming himself and the Socratic discipline far from sufficient for bringing philosophy to perfection, he travelled as extensively as he was able, going to every place famed for the cultivation of any science of which he could make himself master. Thus he learned from the Egyptians whatever they held and taught as important, and from Egypt, passing into those parts of Italy which were filled with the fame of the Pythagoreans, he mastered, with the greatest facility, and under the most eminent teachers, all the Italic philosophy which was then in vogue. And as he had a peculiar love for his master Socrates, he made him the speaker in all his dialogues, putting into his mouth whatever he had learned, either from others or from the efforts of his own powerful intellect, tempering even his moral disputations with the grace and politeness of the Socratic style. And as the study of wisdom consists in action and contemplation, so that one part of it may be called active, the other contemplative, the active part having reference to the conduct of life, that is, to the regulation of morals, and the contemplative part to the investigation into the causes of nature, and into pure truth, Socrates is said to have excelled in the active part of that study, while Pythagoras gave more attention to its contemplative part, on which he brought to bear all the force of his great intellect. To Plato is given the praise of having perfected philosophy by combining both parts into one. He then divides it into three parts, the first moral, which is chiefly occupied with action, the second natural, of which the object is contemplation, and the third rational, which discriminates between the true and the false. And though this last is necessary both to action and contemplation, it is contemplation, nevertheless, which lays peculiar claim to the office of investigating the nature of truth. Thus this tripartite division is not contrary to that which made the study of wisdom to consist in action and contemplation now as to what plato thought with respect to each of these parts that is what he believed to be the end of all actions the cause of all natures and the light of all intelligences it would be a question too long to discuss and about which we ought not to make any rash affirmation for as plato liked and constantly affected the well-known method of his master socrates namely that of dissimulating his knowledge or his opinions it is not easy to discover clearly what he himself thought on various matters any more than it is to discover what were the real opinions of socrates We must nevertheless insert into our work certain of those opinions which he expresses in his writings, whether he himself uttered them, or narrates them as expressed by others, and seems himself to approve of, opinions sometimes favourable to the true religion, which our faith takes up and defends, and sometimes contrary to it, as, for example, in the questions concerning the existence of one God or of many, as it relates to the truly blessed life which is to be after death. For those who are praised as having most closely followed Plato, who is justly preferred to all the other philosophers of the Gentiles, and who are said to have manifested the greatest acuteness in understanding him, do perhaps entertain such an idea of God as to admit that in him are to be found the cause of existence, the ultimate reason for the understanding, and the end in reference to which the whole life is to be regulated. Of which three things the first is understood to pertain to the natural, the second to the rational, and the third to the moral part of philosophy. Philosophy, For if man has been so created as to attain, through that which is most excellent in him, to that which excels all things, that is, to the one true and absolutely good God, without whom no nature exists, no doctrine instructs, no exercise profits, let him be sought, in whom all things are secure to us, let him be discovered, in whom all truth becomes certain to us, let him be loved, in whom all becomes right to us. CHAPTER Five. If, then, Plato defines the wise man as one who imitates, knows, loves this God, and who is rendered blessed through fellowship with him in his own blessedness, why discuss with the other philosophers? It is evident that none come nearer to us than the Platonists to them therefore let that fabulous theology give place which delights the minds of men with the crimes of the gods and that civil theology also in which impure demons under the name of gods have seduced the peoples of the earth given up to earthly pleasures desiring to be honoured by the errors of men and by filling the minds of their worshippers with impure desires exciting them to make the representation of their crimes one of the rites of their worship whilst they themselves found in the spectators of these exhibitions a most pleasing spectacle a theology in which whatever was honourable in the temple was defiled by its mixture with the obscenity of the theatre and whatever was base in the theatre was vindicated by the abominations of the temples To these philosophers also the interpretations of Varro must give place, in which he explains the sacred rites as having reference to heaven and earth, and to the seeds and operations of perishable things. For in the first place those rites have not the signification which he would have men believe is attached to them, and therefore truth does not follow him in his attempt so to interpret them. And even if they had this signification, still those things ought not to be worshipped by the rational soul as its god, which are placed below it in the scale of nature, nor ought the soul to prefer to itself as gods things to which the true god has given it the preference the same must be said of those writings pertaining to the sacred rites which numa pompilius took care to conceal by causing them to be buried along with himself and which when they were afterwards turned up by the plough were burned by order of the senate and to treat numa with all honour let us mention as belonging to the same rank as these writings that which alexander of macedon wrote to his mother as communicated to him by leo an egyptian high priest In this letter not only Picus and Faunus, and Aeneas and Romulus, or even Hercules, and Aesculapius and Liber, born of Semele, and the twin sons of Tendarius, or any other mortals who have been deified, but even the principal gods themselves, to whom Cicero, in his Tusculan questions, alludes without mentioning their names, Jupiter, Juno, Saturn, Vulcan, Vesta, and many others whom Varro attempts to identify with the parts or the elements of the world, are shown to have been men. There is, as we have said, a similarity between this case and that of Numa, for the priest, being afraid because he had revealed a mystery, earnestly begged of Alexander to command his mother to burn the letter which conveyed those communications to her. Let these two theologies, then, the fabulous and the civil, give place to the Platonic philosophers, who have recognized the true God as the author of all things, the source of the light of truth, and the bountiful bestower of all blessedness. And not these only, but to these great acknowledgers of so great a God, those philosophers must yield, who, having their mind enslaved to their body, suppose the principles of all things to be material as Thales, who held that the first principle of all things was water, Anaximenes, that it was air, the Stoics, that it was fire, Epicurus, who affirmed that it consisted of atoms, that is to say, of minute corpuscules, and many others whom it is needless to enumerate, but who believed that bodies, simple or compound, animate or inanimate, but nevertheless bodies, were the cause and principle of all things. For some of them, as, for instance, the Epicureans, believed that living things could originate from things without life, Others held that all things living or without life spring from a living principle, but that nevertheless all things being material spring from a material principle. For the Stoics thought that fire, that is, one of the four material elements of which this visible world is composed, was both living and intelligent, the maker of the world and of all things contained in it, that it was in fact God. These, and others like them, have only been able to suppose that which their hearts, enslaved to sense, have vainly suggested to them. And yet they have within themselves something which they could not see. They have represented to themselves inwardly things which they had seen without, even when they were not seeing them, but only thinking of them. But this representation and thought is no longer a body, but only the similitude of a body, and that faculty of the mind by which this similitude of a body is seen is neither a body nor the similitude of a body, and the faculty which judges whether the representation is beautiful or ugly is without doubt superior to the object judged of. This principle is the understanding of man, the rational soul, and it is certainly not a body, since that similitude of a body which it beholds and judges of is itself not a body. The soul is neither earth, nor water, nor air, nor fire, of which four bodies, called the four elements, we see that this world is composed. And if the soul is not a body, how should God, its creator, be a body? Let all those philosophers, then, give place, as we have said, to the Platonists, and those also who have been ashamed to say that God is a body, but yet have thought that our souls are of the same nature as God. They have not been staggered by the great changeableness of the soul, an attribute which it would be impious to ascribe to the divine nature, but they say it is the body which changes the soul, for in itself it is unchangeable. As well might they say, flesh is wounded by some body, for in itself it is invulnerable. In a word, that which is unchangeable can be changed by nothing, so that that which can be changed by the body cannot properly be said to be immutable. CHAPTER six. These philosophers, then, whom we see not undeservedly exalted above the rest in fame and glory, have seen that no material body is God, and therefore they have transcended all bodies in seeking for God. They have seen that whatever is changeable is not the Most High God, and therefore they have transcended every soul and all changeable spirits in seeking the Supreme. They have seen also that in every changeable thing the form which makes it that which it is, whatever be its mode or nature, can only be through him who truly is, because he is unchangeable. And therefore, whether we consider the whole body of the world, its figure, qualities, and orderly movement, and also all the bodies which are in it, or whether we consider all life, either that which nourishes and maintains, as the life of trees, or that which, besides this, has also sensation, as the life of beasts, or that which adds to all these intelligence, as the life of man, or that which does not need the support of nutriment, but only maintains, feels, understands, as the life of angels, all can only be through him who absolutely, Is, For to him it is not one thing to be, and another to live, as though he could be, not living. Nor is it to him one thing to live, and another thing to understand, as though he could live, not understanding. Nor is it to him one thing to understand, another thing to be blessed, as though he could understand, and not be blessed. But to him, to live, to understand, to be blessed, are to be." They have understood from this unchangeableness and this simplicity that all things must have been made by him, and that he could himself have been made by none. For they have considered that whatever is, is either body or life, and that life is something better than body, and that the nature of body is sensible, and that of life intelligible. Therefore they have preferred the intelligible nature to the sensible. We mean by sensible things such things as can be perceived by the sight and touch of the body, by intelligible things such as can be understood by the sight of the mind. For there is no corporeal beauty, whether in the condition of a body, as figure, or in its movement, as in music, of which it is not the mind that judges. But this could never have been, had there not existed in the mind itself a superior form of these things, without bulk, without noise of voice, without space and time, but even in respect of these things had the mind not been mutable it would not have been possible for one to judge better than another with regard to sensible forms he who is clever judges better than he who is slow he who is skilled than he who is unskilful he who is practised than he who is unpractised and the same person judges better after he has gained experience than he did before But that which is capable of more and less is mutable, whence able men, who have thought deeply on these things, have gathered that the first form is not to be found in those things whose form is unchangeable. Since, therefore, they saw that body and mind might be more or less beautiful in form, and that if they wanted form they could have no existence, they saw that there is some existence in which is the first form, unchangeable, and therefore not admitting of degrees of comparison, and in that they most rightly believed was the first principle of things which was not made, and by which all things were made therefore that which is known of God he manifested to them when his invisible things were seen by them, being understood by those things which have been made, also his eternal power and Godhead by whom all visible and temporal things have been created. We have said enough upon that part of theology, which they call physical, that is, natural. CHAPTER seven then again as far as regards the doctrine which treats of that which they call logic that is rational philosophy far be it from us to compare them with those who attributed to the bodily senses the faculty of discriminating truth and thought that all we learn is to be measured by their untrustworthy and fallacious rules such were the epicureans and all of the same school such also were the Stoics who ascribed to the bodily senses that expertness and disputation which they so ardently love, called by them dialectic, asserting that from the senses the mind conceives the notions enno of those things which they explicate by definition, and hence is developed the whole plan and connection of their learning and teaching. I often wonder, with respect to this, how they can say that none are beautiful but the wise. For by what bodily sense have they perceived that beauty? By what eyes of the flesh have they seen wisdom's comeliness of form? Those, however, whom we justly rank before all others, have distinguished those things which are conceived by the mind from those which are perceived by the senses, neither taking away from the senses anything to which they are competent, nor attributing to them anything beyond their competency. In the light of our understandings by which all things are learned by us, they have affirmed to be that self-same God by whom all things were made. Chapter eight. The remaining part of philosophy is morals, or what is called by the Greeks ica, in which is discussed the question concerning the chief good, that which will leave us nothing further to seek in order to be blessed if only we make all our actions refer to it and seek it not for the sake of something else but for its own sake therefore it is called the end because we wish other things on account of it but itself only for its own sake this beatific good therefore according to some comes to a man from the body according to others from the mind and according to others from both together for they saw that man himself consists of soul and body and therefore they believed that from either of these two or from both together their well-being must proceed consisting in a certain final good which could render them blessed and to which they might refer all their actions not requiring anything ulterior to which to refer that good itself This is why those who have added a third kind of good things, which they call extrinsic, as honour, glory, wealth, and the like, have not regarded them as part of the final good, that is, to be sought after for their own sake, but as things which are to be sought for the sake of something else, affirming that this kind of good is good to the good and evil to the evil. Wherefore, whether they have sought the good of man from the mind or from the body, or from both together, it is still only for man they have supposed that it must be sought. But they who have sought it from the body have sought it from the inferior part of man, they who have sought it from the mind from the superior part, and they who have sought it from both, from the whole man. Whether therefore they have sought it from any part, or from the whole man, still they have only sought it from man. Nor have these differences, being three, given rise to only three dissentient sects of philosophers, but to many. For diverse philosophers have held diverse opinions both concerning the good of the body, and the good of the mind, and the good of both together. Let therefore all these give place to those philosophers who have not affirmed that a man is blessed by the enjoyment of the body, or by the enjoyment of the mind, but by the enjoyment of God. Enjoying him, however, not as the mind does the body, or itself, or as one friend enjoys another, but as the eye enjoys light, if indeed we may draw any comparison between these things. But what the nature of this comparison is, will, if God help me, be shown in another place to the best of my ability at present it is sufficient to mention that plato determined the final good to be to live according to virtue and affirmed that he only can attain to virtue who knows and imitates god which knowledge and imitation are the only cause of blessedness therefore he did not doubt that to philosophize is to love god whose nature is incorporeal whence it certainly follows that the student of wisdom that is the philosopher will then become blessed when he shall have begun to enjoy god For though he is not necessarily blessed who enjoys that which he loves, for many are miserable by loving that which ought not to be loved, and still more miserable when they enjoy it, nevertheless no one is blessed who does not enjoy that which he loves. For even they who love things which ought not to be loved do not count themselves blessed by loving merely, but by enjoying them. Who then but the most miserable will deny that he is blessed who enjoys that which he loves, and loves the true and highest good? But the true and highest good, according to Plato, is God, and therefore he would call him a philosopher who loves God. For philosophy is directed to the obtaining of the blessed life, and he who loves God is blessed in the enjoyment of God. CHAPTER nine. Whatever philosophers therefore thought concerning the supreme God, that he is both the maker of all created things, the light by which things are known, and the good in reference to which things are to be done, that we have in him the first principle of nature, the truth of doctrine, and the happiness of life, whether these philosophers may be more suitably called Platonists, or whether they may give some other name to their sect, whether we say that only the chief men of the Ionic School, such as Plato himself, and they who have well understood him, have thought thus, or whether we also include the Italic School, on account of Pythagoras and the Pythagoreans, and all who may have held like opinions, and, lastly, whether also we include all who have been held wise men and philosophers among all nations, who were discovered to have seen and taught this, be they Atlantics, Libyans, Egyptians, Indians, Persians, Chaldeans, Scythians, Gauls, Spaniards, or of other nations, we prefer these to all other philosophers and confess that they approach nearest to us, chapter ten. For although a Christian man, instructed only in ecclesiastical literature, may perhaps be ignorant of the very name of Platonists, and may not even know that there have existed two schools of philosophers speaking the Greek tongue, to wit the Ionic and the Italic, he is nevertheless not so deaf with respect to human affairs as not to know that philosophers profess the study and even the possession of wisdom. He is on his guard, however, with respect to those who philosophize according to the elements of this world, not according to God, by whom the world itself was made, For he is warned by the precept of the apostle, and faithfully hears what has been said. Beware that no one deceive you through philosophy and vain deceit, according to the elements of the world. Then, that he may not suppose that all philosophers are such as do this, he hears the same apostle say concerning certain of them, Because that which is known of God is manifest among them, for God has manifested it to them. For his invisible things from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things which are made, also his eternal power and Godhead. And, when speaking to the Athenians, after having spoken a mighty thing concerning God, which few are able to understand, in him we live and move and have our being, he goes on to say, As certain also of your own have said. He knows well, too, to be on his guard against even these philosophers and their errors. For where it has been said by him, that God is manifested to them by those things which are made, his invisible things, that they might be seen by the understanding, there it has also been said, that they did not rightly worship God himself, because they paid divine honours, which are due to him alone, to other things also to which they ought not to have paid them because knowing god they glorified him not as god neither were thankful but became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened professing themselves to be wise they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible god into the likeness of the image of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things where the apostle would have us understand him as meaning the Romans and Greeks and Egyptians, who gloried in the name of wisdom, but concerning this we will dispute with them afterwards. With respect, however, to that wherein they agree with us, we prefer them to all others, namely concerning the one God, the author of this universe, who is not only above every body, being incorporeal, but also above all souls, being incorruptible, our principle, our light, our good and though the christian man being ignorant of their writings does not use in disputation words which he has not learned not calling that part of philosophy natural which is the latin term or physical which is the greek one which treats of the investigation of nature or that part rational or logical which deals with the question how truth may be discovered or that part moral or ethical which concerns morals and shows how good is to be sought and evil to be shunned he is not therefore ignorant that it is from the one true and supremely good god that we have that nature in which we are made in the image of god and that doctrine by which we know him and ourselves and that grace through which by cleaving to him we are blessed This, therefore, is the cause why we prefer these to all the others, because, whilst other philosophers have worn out their minds and powers in seeking the causes of things, and endeavouring to discover the right mode of learning and of living, these, by knowing God, have found where resides the cause by which the universe has been constituted, and the light by which truth is to be discovered, and the fountain at which felicity is to be drunk. All philosophers, then, who have had these thoughts concerning God, whether Platonists or others, agree with us but we have thought it better to plead our cause with the Platonists, because their writings are better known. For the Greeks, whose tongue holds the highest place among the languages of the Gentiles, are loud in their praises of these writings. And the Latins, taken with their excellence or their renown, have studied them more heartily than other writings, and by translating them into our tongue have given them greater celebrity and notoriety. CHAPTER Eleven certain partakers with us in the grace of christ wonder when they hear and read that plato had conceptions concerning god in which they recognise considerable agreement with the truth of our religion Some have concluded from this that when he went to Egypt he had heard the prophet Jeremiah, or, whilst travelling in the same country, had read the prophetic scriptures which opinion I myself have expressed in certain of my writings. But a careful calculation of dates contained in chronological history shows that Plato was born about a hundred years after the time in which Jeremiah prophesied, and, as he lived eighty-one years, there are found to have been about seventy years from his death to that time when Ptolemy, king of Egypt, requested the prophetic scriptures of the Hebrew people to be sent to him from Judea, and committed them to seventy Hebrews, who also knew the Greek tongue to be translated and kept. Therefore, on that voyage of his, Plato could neither have seen Jeremiah, who was dead so long before, nor have read those same scriptures which had not yet been translated into the Greek language of which he was a master, unless, indeed, we say, that as he was most earnest in the pursuit of knowledge, he also studied those writings through an interpreter as he did those of the Egyptians. Not, indeed, writing a translation of them, the facilities for doing which were only gained even by Ptolemy in return for munificent acts of kindness, though fear of his kingly authority might have seemed a sufficient motive but learning as much as he possibly could concerning their contents by means of conversation what warrants this supposition are the opening verses of genesis in the beginning god made the heaven and the earth and the earth was invisible and without order and darkness was over the abyss and the spirit of god moved over the waters for in the timaeus when writing on the formation of the world he says that god first united earth and fire from which it is evident that he assigns to fire a place in heaven this opinion bears a certain resemblance to the statement in the beginning god made heaven and earth Plato next speaks of those two intermediary elements, water and air, by which the other two extremes, namely earth and fire, were mutually united, from which circumstance he is thought to have so understood the words, The Spirit of God moved over the waters. For not paying sufficient attention to the designations given by those scriptures to the Spirit of God, he may have thought that the four elements are spoken of in that place, because the air also is called Spirit. Then, as to Plato's saying that the philosopher is a lover of God, nothing shines forth more conspicuously in those sacred writings. But the most striking thing in this connection, and that which most of all inclines me almost to assent to the opinion that Plato was not ignorant of those writings, is the answer which was given to the question elicited from the holy Moses, when the words of God were conveyed to him by the angel. For when he asked what was the name of that God who was commanding him to go and deliver the Hebrew people out of Egypt, this answer was given, I am who am, and thou shalt say to the children of Israel, He who is sent me unto you. As though compared with him that truly is, because he is unchangeable, those things which have been created mutable are not, a truth which Plato zealously held and most diligently commended. And I know not whether this sentiment is anywhere to be found in the books of those who were before Plato, unless in that book where it is said, I am who am, and thou shalt say to the children of Israel, Who is sent me unto you. CHAPTER Twelve. But we need not determine from what source he learned these things, whether it was from the books of the ancients who preceded him, or, as is more likely, from the words of the apostle, because that which is known of God has been manifested among them, for God hath manifested it to them. For his invisible things from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by those things which have been made, also his eternal power and Godhead." From whatever source he may have derived this knowledge, then, I think I have made it sufficiently plain that I have not chosen the Platonic philosophers undeservedly, as the parties with whom to discuss, because the question we have just taken up concerns the natural theology, the question, namely, whether sacred rites are to be performed to one God or to many, for the sake of the happiness which is to be after death. I have specially chosen them because their juster thoughts concerning the one God who made heaven and earth have made them illustrious among philosophers this has given them such superiority to all others in the judgment of posterity that though aristotle the disciple of plato a man of eminent abilities inferior in eloquence to plato yet far superior to many in that respect had founded the peripatetic sect so called because they were in the habit of walking about during their disputations. And though he had, through the greatness of his fame, gathered very many disciples into his school, even during the life of his master, and though Plato, at his death, was succeeded in a school, which was called the Academy, by Speusippus, his sister's son, and Xenocrates, his beloved disciple, who, together with their successors, were called from this name of the school, academics. Nevertheless, the most illustrious recent philosophers, who have chosen to follow Plato, have been on willing to be called peripatetics or academics, but have preferred the name of Platonists. Among these were the renowned Plotinus, Iamblichus, and Porphyry, who were Greeks, and the African Apuleius, who was learned both in the Greek and Latin tongues. All these, however, and the rest, who were of the same school, and also Plato himself, thought that sacred rites ought to be performed in honour of many gods. CHAPTER Thirteen. Therefore, although in many other important respects they differ from us, nevertheless with respect to this particular point of difference which I have just stated, as it is of great moment, and the question on hand concerns it, I will first ask them to what gods they think that sacred rites are to be performed, to the good or to the bad, or both the good and the bad. But we have the opinion of Plato affirming that all the gods are good, and that there is not one of the gods bad. It follows, therefore, that these are to be performed to the good, for then they are performed to gods. For if they are not good, neither are they gods. Now if this be the case, for what else ought we to believe concerning the gods? Certainly it explodes the opinion that the bad gods are to be propitiated by sacred rites in order that they may not harm us, but the good gods are to be invoked in order that they may assist us. For there are no bad gods, and it is to the good that, as they say, the due honour of such rites is to be paid.' Of what character, then, are those gods who love scenic displays, even demanding that a place be given them among divine things, and that they be exhibited in their honour? The power of these gods proves that they exist, but their liking such things proves that they are bad. For it is well known what Plato's opinion was concerning scenic plays. He thinks that the poets themselves, because they have composed songs so unworthy of the majesty and goodness of the gods, ought to be banished from the state. Of what character, therefore, are those gods who contend with Plato himself about those scenic plays? He does not suffer the gods to be defamed by false crimes. The gods command those same crimes to be celebrated in their own honour. In fine, when they ordered these plays to be inaugurated, they not only demanded base things, but also did cruel things, taking from Titus Latinius his son, and setting a disease upon him because he had refused to obey them, which they removed when he had fulfilled their commands. Plato, however, bad though they were, did not think they were to be feared, but, holding to his opinion with the utmost firmness and constancy, does not hesitate to remove from a well-ordered state all the sacrilegious follies of the poets with which these gods are delighted, because they themselves are impure. But Labeo places this same Plato, as I have mentioned already in the second book, among the demi-gods now labeo thinks that the bad deities are to be propitiated with bloody victims and by fasts accompanied with the same but the good deities with plays and all other things which are associated with joyfulness how comes it then that the demigod plato so persistently dares to take away those pleasures because he deems them base not from the demigods, but from the gods and these the good gods and, moreover, those very gods themselves do certainly refute the opinion of Labeo, for they showed themselves, in the case of Latinius, not to be only wanton and sportive, but also cruel and terrible. Let the Platonists, therefore, explain these things to us, since, following the opinion of their master, they think that all the gods are good and honourable and friendly to the virtues of the wise, holding it unlawful to think otherwise concerning any of the gods. We will explain it, they say. Let us then attentively listen to them. Chapter 14. There is, say they, a threefold division of all animals endowed with a rational soul, namely into gods, men, and demons. The gods occupy the loftiest region, men the lowest, the demons the middle region. For the abode of the gods is heaven, that of men the earth, that of the demons the air. As the dignity of their regions is diverse, so also is that of their natures. Therefore the gods are better than men and demons. Men have been placed below the gods and demons, both in respect of the order of the regions they inhabit, and the differences of their merits. The demons, therefore, who hold the middle place, as they are inferior to the gods than whom they inhabit a lower region, so they are superior to men than whom they inhabit a loftier one. For they have immortality of body in common with the gods, but passions of the mind in common with men on which account say they it is not wonderful that they are delighted with the obscenities of the theatre and the fictions of the poets since they are also subject to human passions from which the gods are far removed and to which they are altogether strangers whence we conclude that it was not the gods who were all good and highly exalted that plato deprived of the pleasure of theatric plays by reprobating and prohibiting the fictions of the poets but the demons Of these things many have written, among others Apuleius, the Platonist of Medara, who composed a whole work on the subject, entitled Concerning the God of Socrates. He there discusses and explains of what kind that deity was who attended on Socrates, a sort of familiar, by whom it is said he was admonished to desist from any action which would not turn out to his advantage. He asserts most distinctly, and proves at great length, that it was not a god, but a demon, and he discusses with great diligence the opinion of Plato concerning the lofty estate of the gods, the lowly estate of men, and the middle estate of demons. These things being so, how did Plato dare to take away, if not from the gods, whom he removed from all human contagion, certainly from the demons, all the pleasures of the theatre, by expelling the poets from the state? Evidently in this way he wished to admonish the human soul, although still confined in these moribund members, to despise the shameful commands of the demons, and to detest their impurity, and to choose rather the splendour of virtue. But if Plato showed himself virtuous in answering and prohibiting these things, then certainly it was shameful of the demons to command them. Therefore either Apuleius is wrong, and Socrates is familiar, did not belong to this class of deities, or Plato held contradictory opinions, now honouring the demons, now removing from the well-regulated state the things in which they delighted, or Socrates is not to be congratulated on the friendship of the demon, of which Apuleius was so ashamed that he entitled his book On the God of Socrates, whilst according to the tenor of his discussion, wherein he so diligently and at such length distinguishes gods from demons, he ought not to have entitled it concerning the the god, but concerning the demon of Socrates. But he preferred to put this into the discussion itself, rather than into the title of his book. For through the sound doctrine which has illuminated human society, all, or almost all, men have such a horror at the name of demons, that every one who, before reading the dissertation of Apuleius, which sets forth the dignity of demons, should have read the title of the book, On the Demon of Socrates, would certainly have thought that the author was not a sane man." But what did even Apuleius find to praise in the demons except subtlety and strength of body, and a higher place of habitation? For when he spoke generally concerning their manners, he said nothing that was good, but very much that was bad. Finally, no one, when he has read that book, wonders that they desired to have even the obscenity of the stage among divine things, or that, wishing to be thought gods, they should be delighted with the crimes of the gods, or that all those sacred solemnities whose obscenity occasions laughter, and whose shameful cruelty causes horror, should be in agreement with their passions. End of Book Eight, Chapters One through Fourteen. Recording by Darren L. Slider, Fort Worth, Texas www.logoslibrary.org